Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. Steve Oaken is, of course, the senior advisor at McClarty Associates. Got to talk about a lot of things, Steve, on our international news review. Welcome to the show. Great to see you. You know, I miss the sights and sounds of Topio as well, Glenn. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being with us, Steve. So much happening. Let's start with the president. Of course, we we are hearing that he's in uh, you know, mostly it seems he's in a very stable condition, doesn't have a fever. We are getting a little bit of mixed messaging uh, around that, though. His chief of staff gave some comments uh, that were not exactly in line with that, but it doesn't seem like there's anything too serious going on. What What do we know or what do we think we know at this moment about President Trump's well, uh, situation? Well, that's the issue. We don't really know anything. And, and there is a real lack of transparency. And look, in in the past, presidents do not like to show any sign of weakness at all. They want to uh, inspire strength, both for voters. And you could also argue that um, when they're ill, they don't want, you know, our adversaries overseas to know either. You know, Franklin Roosevelt, very few people knew he was in a wheelchair. John Kennedy had Addison's disease. um, And no one really knew that when President Reagan was shot. uh, No one knew how close to death Uh, he was. And so this isn't different in that regard, but there's a real issue here that is different. And that's because the president potentially got other people ill. He potentially harmed other people because there was no transparency about when he got COVID. How um, do they think he got it? Why did he continue to do things after he had been exposed to some of his staff? So there's a transparency issue about what did he do and, and when he knew it? And then also, how well is he now? Because that is a grave concern to the American people. Yeah, we're just getting uh, one of the wires. Reuters is saying that uh, president has said from his hospital room on Saturday, he feels much better. But the next few days will be the real test of his treatment uh, for COVID-19. Uh, in a, he posted a four minute video on Twitter. Uh, I think one of the first times he has communicated by Twitter in the last couple of days, which is unusual, where he was wearing a jacket, open shirt, uh, open collared shirt, which is unusual. He always has his tie on, looking a bit tired. Uh, He said, quote, over the next period of few days, I guess the real test, it'll be the real test. So we're seeing what will happen over those next days, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So he is he is up. He is giving those statements. But, you know, we still don't know exactly where he's at or or obviously what the future of his recovery will look like. And and that's going to have a huge impact on how the U.S. is governed. It's going to have a huge impact on the campaign. Um, what does this mean going to the election? And so, you know, this, again, you know, looking at a, at a four-minute video, which I watched just, you know, before we started talking, right. you can't tell. I mean, is he ill? Is he is he okay? Is he recovering? And, you know, we want to know more. Um, and everybody, and, and the president mentioned this, you know, there is bipartisan support for him to be healthy. Everybody wants to see a healthy president because it's in the best stake for the country, no matter what side of the election you're going to be on. Yeah. How, how would we do that? How would that what would that look like going forward, Steve, for uh, a Trump White House, a Biden White House, whoever comes after the next president? How do we get back to that place of transparency when, frankly, you know, whoever is holding the strings of information in the White House can decide how much information they give? Should there be some sort of a uh, mandate, I, I won't say a law, but a, uh, you know, something written down that says this is the prescribed procedure if a president takes ill. Well, there are, are prescribed procedures and, and that's in, you know, the Constitution about when does the president turn over 
uh, his power to the vice president if he's if he's on if he believes he's incapable of doing that. The, the president did not do that now, so he is in charge of, sure. of the executive branch uh, of the United States. It's been used in the past when I think it was George W. Bush, you know, had a had a colonoscopy and and, and went under for an hour. When that time he was under, um, Vice President Cheney had had the executive authority during that period. But it's up to the president now. The cabinet can come in and take the power away from him um, if they believe they need to do so. If he becomes incapacitated before transferring the power, that's never happened. So it really it's it's more of a norm than a than a, a law. And and really, that's the way it has to be. You just have to vote for somebody you trust to carry out what's in the best interest of the country. Mm. All right, Steve. Let's move on. Uh, we don't know what of course, will transpire with the president or the first lady over the next few days, obviously hoping that they will be better soon and, and recover fully. We do have debates scheduled this week, though, for the vice presidents, which uh, is going on as scheduled. We haven't heard anything to the uh, contrary. What are we expecting from Kamala Harris and Mike Pence? Well, I, mean, I think first one of the questions is, are the it will the the trump pence campaign follow the rules when it comes to safety that they did not when they had the debate in cleveland everybody was supposed to be masked the trump family refused masks after even being given the option to get additional masks from the from the cleveland clinic mm. they refused the president did not arrive in time to get tested uh, for COVID, so it was on the honor system. I think you're going to see a lot more strict rules that the Trump-Pence campaign is going to have to live by. Then, presuming we do have the debate, I certainly think it will be a much more civil debate than we had. <laughs> Couldn't be much less the, civil than the last one. <laughs> I think we, we hit rock bottom. Most people would agree with you on that, I think, Republicans yeah. and Democrats. <laughs> uh, and that's not Pence's style. Yeah. Um, right. And so, I mean, I think you'll see a much more substantive debate that the American people want to know. What are What is the Trump-Pence campaign going to do or an administration do in its second term? How are they going to address COVID differently um, if so, then they've done previously. And it's the chance for, for Kamala Harris not only to push back and, and contrast what, what the Biden campaign would do, but to make the affirmative case as well. Joe Biden tried to do that. The, the format didn't really work for him. So I think you'll see a much more substantive uh, and civil debate that we really need. Steve, would we expect Harris to pound or push hard on the COVID-19 response of the Trump administration, or would we expect her to move forward and put out more proposals, more substantive policy ideas that she and Biden would bring to a White House? What do you think, of, what do well, you think I, they'll do? Or both? It, 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 I, it, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think clearly this is the chance for you know Kamala Harris to make the case that Mike Pence, who's the chair of the Coronavirus Task Force, the country is no better off today and potentially worse off today than it was even a few months ago. Why is that? What has he done? Why hasn't he why hasn't he taken the steps to favor a national mandate to the extent the president can on masks? The Trump administration could have required masks on airplanes. They could require masks in federal buildings. They may not be able to order a governor to do certain things, but they could have done a lot more. And I think you, ex I expect her to, to see her be very tough on why they didn't make those decisions. But it's also to show the American people, this is what we would do. This is the models we would follow. This is the principles we would put forward. 
because unless you would, unless you address COVID, you are not going to fix any other problems the United States has right now. So it's going to be both. Early on, of course, President, uh, Vice President Trump was in charge of the coronavirus response, and then he was taken off that. Uh, as his, uh, you know, out of his portfolio, if I can put it that way. Uh, would you expect that to be something that Kamala Harris would bring up? Is that important that he was sidelined from, from that job? I don't know if sidelined is the right word. That might be a, a, a little bit leading. But is that an appropriate topic to come up in this debate, do you think? Well, I don't know if he's still technically the, the chair of the of the debate, but clear, of, the, of the task force, but clearly he was front and center. And then President Trump made the decision that he wanted to be front and center. So he took over uh, those daily briefings. Yeah. And I think you need to look, you know, you know, Mike Pence um, is, you know, very measured, um, mm. very smart. Um, and I think you need to if, if you're the, the Harris team, you need to tie Mike Pence, of course, to the entire administration and, and have him take responsibility for all of that, whether he was on the podium or he wasn't on the podium. So I don't yeah. know what it'll be who was briefing, it's what happened, why did it happen, why didn't you do this, and, and how are you going to move forward? And so I think you're going to see a very calm and measured a vice president. He's very good at, 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 at you know, he's a, a former radio guy like you, Glenn. I mean, he's very good at this stuff. <laughs> well, thanks for that. Um, <laughs> all right, let's 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 move on to the, uh, the 30th anniversary of relations, official relations between Singapore and Beijing. A uh, big moment. It was celebrated yesterday. It was the actual anniversary. Messages going back and forth between the Chinese government and the Singapore government uh, of congratulations and that sort of thing. Uh, this comes amid the backdrop of of uh, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, traveling to Asia this week. He will not be coming to Singapore or to China, but he will be coming to other countries in the region to reaffirm the U.S. Um, relationship and dedication to what they're calling the Indo-Pacific. How does the how does the Singapore-Beijing relationship look to you right now? What is the importance of that against the backdrop of the U.S. in the neighborhood? Well, I, I was fortunate enough to be at the 20th anniversary celebration of the the Singapore-China normalization of, of relationships, which which Lee Kuan Yew uh, spoke in. I can't remember if he said that there, but Lee Kuan Yew famously quoted an, an African proverb is saying, you know, when, when elephants fight, the grass gets trampled. Mm. Um, and when the U.S. and China are fighting, it almost doesn't matter what, what the smaller countries uh, ha ha do because they're going to get trampled over. Um, and that's what's really, you know, the, the balancing act that, that Singapore needs to play out. And as, you know, Prime Minister Lee said, the only way a country like Singapore can really, you know, be have its interests looked after is through the multilateral system where everybody comes together. All interests are looked at, not just U.S. China. And that's why this election is so important for right. Singapore, because Trump has a unilateral foreign policy. Biden has said he will have a multilateral foreign policy. And so the 30th anniversary of, of Singapore-China relations, again, like the 20th, it's, it's in part of how the U.S. and China get along um, and, and whether the multilateral framework is working or not. Uh, Singapore has always had a very uh, interesting uh, dynamic between the U.S. and China. Of course, the the U.S. has a, a naval base here, about two, three hundred uh, 
American uh, Navy personnel are based here. It's a resupply depot for the U.S. Navy. A lot of ships call here. But obviously, they also allow Chinese ships to come, and there's great uh, bilateral relations. How has Singapore done in managing that relationship between the two superpowers that are always kind of jostling for uh, for control in this part of the world, or at least influence. I mean, I mean like I, 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 pointing all those out, Singapore has, has done as well as anybody could do so, having very good relations both with the United States um, and with China. You know, I mean, you know, Sing- as you mentioned, all those strong relationships between the US and Singapore, and you look at all the investment between Singapore and China, all the business that happens from Singapore to China, and now more and more Chinese companies looking to use Singapore as as a hub, uh, especially you know the you know the Alibabas and, and uh, of of the world. So it's really a remarkable that Singapore has been able to maintain very strong relationships with both governments, um, and I think they're you know look, they're going to continue to be able to do that doing so in a way where the U.S. is in a multilateral framework becomes much easier and better for them. You know, Singapore will be in the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement with China. But if the U.S. were in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, then Singapore would be in two different multilateral trade agreements, Mm. one anchored by the U.S., one anchored by China. And that's what would really be helpful for Singapore is to have U.S. take the U.S. to take that multilateral approach again. Yeah, we'll see if that would happen in the next administration, uh, whoever is president. Um, <laughs> that would be interesting to see. That's all, that's all we have time to say about that. Uh, and finally, Steve, uh, many of us uh, who are Americans living in Singapore uh, this week, a story in the Straits Times, you were quoted, uh, Tina Dato was quoted, the head of Republicans abroad here, uh, about the ability to vote and to send our ballots back through the through the mail, through the embassy. And that's always a, a, a useful thing for many people versus having to send it through the traditional mail or pay to have it go through a, an express service. Uh, tell us a little bit about that uh, that article and, and what you see as overseas folks uh, gearing up to, uh, to do their vote. Uh, I believe uh, you've mentioned this st- statistic before, three million Americans of voting age live overseas around the world. And traditionally, they have voted in very small numbers, have they not? Oh, pathetic, pathetic numbers. I mean, of that three million, I think the estimation last time is that turnout of the of expats was seven percent, so roughly two hundred and ten thousand uh, vote globally. voted last time yeah. globally of that of that three million, and it is going to. I will guarantee you that number is going to be way higher by multiples. I've you know this is the the fifth presidential election I've seen from from Singapore. I've never seen interest. Uh, like this, where people want to have their say in who the next president um, is going to be. Uh, and there's so much information going out there now from the U.S. community, from, you know, from the AmCham, from the American Club, from the American Association, um, nonpartisan groups, you know, like Vote From Abroad is getting all of that information out there. You can, instead of having to mail it back, if your state requires you to mail your absentee ballot back, you can go to the uh, to the embassy and you physically drop off your ballot and then it'll get sent to the U.S. for you. So there has never been more interest. The most interest I saw, you know, was in 2008 when, when President Obama ran uh, for his, that first time. But the interest now is even greater than that. Yeah, multiple elections that uh, myself and my wife have been overseas. Uh, we voted, you know, we, we request the ballot online to our registrar back in our home states. We've received the ballots already by email. We'll be filling those out today and taking them over to the embassy 
tomorrow, the U.S. Embassy, for free postage uh, back and secure postage back to the U.S. So it's a great opportunity not only to exercise our right to vote, but to do it in a way that is really very painless. I mean, it's frankly easier to be here sending the ballot back than it would be to be in the U.S. and have to go vote in person on Election Day. By far, much easier. And, and that's, you know, what people are, are are worried about a little bit, though, is with the slowdown in the U.S. mail, is it going to get there in time? So people are really getting their ballots in much earlier um, than before. And, you know, there's never been a starker contrast between, you know, two candidates about what their view is of the U.S. role overseas, how the U.S. should be engaging with different countries. And I think for expats here, whichever side you're on, it is you're going to have a real incentive to vote because it is such a difference between the two candidates. And I think that's what's going to drive turn up, uh, turnout so high uh, this year. At least I hope so, because everybody should be exercising their right to vote. Steve Elkin, Senior Advisor, McClarty Associates. As always, thanks for helping us out on our international news and review today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, GVZ. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.